When I was a kid, there was one spot in my little podunk Ontario town that seemed to throb with excitement and futuristic promise. In the sad mall, between the Byway Discount Store and the Kmart, there was a darkened alcove with bizarre carpets and sullen groups of teens. It was a video arcade, and for a kid at the dawn of the 1980s, those bleeps and bloops coming out of the stand-up arcade machines were a siren call to adventure. My parents always seemed to have just run out of quarters by the time we passed by, which in retrospect I now find suspicious. At the time, my imagination had to fill in the gaps about what was happening on those flickering screens. But as a six-year-old, my imagination wasn't experienced enough to consider the possibility that what was actually happening was a mind control experiment that unwilling and unknowing subjects were paying 25 cents to endure. But our imaginations are all grown up now, so it's time to return to the early 1980s and explore the sinister story of Polybius. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Uncover Up. Uh, with me today is your host Nathan Radke. Say hi, Hello. Nathan. There's bleep, Nathan. Bleep. <laughs> and me, Lee Kunle, and we are going to talk about video games. So, yeah, not just Nathan, any video games, but old timey video games from our childhood. That's right. It's somehow going to weave into a conspiracy somewhere along the narrative. But really, we chose this because we feel like reminiscing about uh, wayward youth that we both spent in video game arcades. Uh, for me, it was a place called the Crooked Q, which, uh, yeah, it was a pool hall where all the bad kids hung out, in large part because you were able to get out of the cold and smoke cigarettes, and there were a bunch of video game cabinets there, so old-timey stand-up video game things, not consoles, and I used to play Street Fighter Two. You know, it's amazing that my childhood like shares some certain aspects of that, only instead of the Crooked Q, there was a variety store at the on the corner near my high school, run by Mrs. Babulia, who was a really nice lady, and she also had Street Fighter Two, the cabinet, <laughs> sitting there, and also eventually something called Golden Axe. I don't remember and playing Golden, Golden Axe. Axe. Was like a Dungeons and Dragons style thing. Ooh, you're running I would have around, liked you it. got an axe, and you're yeah. hacking at stuff. There's a place now uh, that I go to as an adult, and it's a pizza place with a bar in it. But the the selling feature is that they have all these 1980s and early 90s video game cabinets that they have set up that work perfectly well. And you go in, you get a slice of pizza and a beer, and then you can play these games endlessly uh, for free, it turns out, which I didn't know. So I was putting in quarters <laughs> into these machines that don't need quarters anymore. And it turns out- Just my a force kids, of habit. Yeah, my kids love it. So sometime uh, when they, well, they were, of course, closed during the COVID lockdown. But uh, before that, we would go once a week and I'd get a beer and a slice and my kids would get the slices of pizza too without the beer. And we would all stand around playing Pac-Man and Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong, uh, like really classic stuff. You know, it's interesting. There's something magic about those old arcade games. 
And I wondered if it was only just nostalgia because it reminds of us our childhood. But if your kids are into like genuinely into playing these games, then maybe there was something to them. It wasn't just that we were young kids in the 80s and we we didn't have anything better to do. But maybe there was something to these games that was fun and playable. Well, as somebody who's not actually an avid gamer, the the virtue of these older video games is their simplicity. You know, mm. the the story is pretty straightforward. It's really easy to learn the controls, and you can go off and play a game with about five or ten seconds introduction to it. Whereas today, I sat down with a buddy of mine uh, on his PS4 to play. I, I think it was Skyrim. Uh, maybe this, maybe he had an Xbox, you know, I don't even know. And it was so complicated. Like it took like an hour just to build the character. And then you gotta like read all this backstory. And then there's like, what are you, what? there's like so many buttons on the controller. I was like, I'm not invested enough to play this. And then there's cutscenes. It's like you're sitting there watching a movie. Yeah. I was like, like, you're like, watching oh my God. someone else play because you barely get to do anything in some of these. You're on rails. So, so that's it. Like the early video games, I think you jump around, you know, you like eat cherries or whatever Pac-Man eats. And it's simple. Don't get eaten. Yep. Eat cherries. It, it seemed simple. But what if it wasn't so simple? Uh. What if there was something else going on? <laughs> what if at the same time you were sort of Pac-Manning around, there was something Pac-Manning around your brain eating your synapses? Because well, you- what we're talking about today is, of course, Polybius. Actually, what if I say it normally, and then you can put in the effect, Polybius. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Let's get a clean one then. Polybius. Yeah. Nice. Because that is actually, to be totally frank, that is to some extent what my parents worried about. And not just my parents, but a lot of parents were worried about the deleterious effects of this new technology on developing brains. What would happen if you're exposed to a lot of flashing lights, a lot of aggressive uh, story content, shooting, uh, fighting, Street Fighter 2 was, was for its time, quite graphic. I remember the sounds. I remember, was there blood? I seem to remember there being blood. I think blood, there was some blood. Right? There was like it, the sound of crunching bones and yes. Hadouken! Uppercut! Yeah. Uh, what if this stuff was actually worming its way into your brain and causing damage or somehow rewiring kids' brains to turn them, I don't know, make them sick or turn them aggressive. And that was a generalized fear, I think, in among my parents and, and, and other parents uh, in the 80s. But what we're talking about is a theory about a video game that actually did this on purpose, that was designed to screw up young people's brains and potentially make them sick or worse. Yeah. And as we do so often, let's go to the West Coast of the United States. Yeah, because a lot of stuff goes down in the West Coast of the United States. Yeah, From it's like Bigfoot half of our episodes. A- yeah, Bigfoot to Alien. Uh, uh, temporally, we tend mostly to be in the 50s and 60s. And geographically, we're in the West Coast. I think we got to yeah. like move there or something. Yeah, well, and shout out to the people of Seattle and Bonnie Lake. Hello again. And uh, Portland. Yes, Portland, Oregon, where this story takes place. Now, I said 50s and 60s were actually in 1981, Portland, Oregon. Something weird emerges. Do you want to pick up the thread from there? A video game shows up in a local arcade. It's in a plain black unmarked cabinet 
which is weird because at the time, one of the ways you attracted people to play your game was to put like just colorful graphics and crazy pictures all over the sides and the back and the top. So to have a, a game cabinet which shows up that it's just plain and black, there was something intriguing and suspicious about that. I think there was also only like one button on it as well. Like it, it did not have your regular uh, interface either. It was like one button. Uh, I don't even think the original had a joystick on it. Yeah, there was something cryptic about this plain cabinet. And there was also something cryptic about the name of this game, which was printed in the top, which was Polybius. Unfortunately, none of the stories that circulate about this game go into any kind of detail about the actual game play, although there's a lot of discussion about how it involved rapidly revolving shapes and strange puzzles. And we don't have any footage of the gameplay. Basically, uh, accompanying this story is often a screenshot of the title screen. And on that, you see the name Polybius in giant arcade-style font. It couldn't be more 1980s. And the name of the production company that had the copyright for the game And I'm going to turn it over to you at this point, because this seems like this is your wheelhouse. Thank you. Uh, In doing the research, I did cringe when I heard people try and pronounce Zinneslöschen, which is a, a kind of weird German word. That is to say, it's not the kind of word Germans themselves would use. In speaking, it seems to be a bit of a, a forced construction. But as German words go, you can uh, make a lot of new words by squeezing two or three words together. That's just like a quirk of the German language. And so this one word is made up of sense or senses, as in like your sense of touch, your sense of hearing. But also, Zin can be meaning or almost to the level of consciousness, although there are separate words for consciousness, but that kind of stuff, like anything from your senses to your awareness of your senses and your surroundings, that is zin or zinus, which would be the plural when you add it with another word. And then löschen, much easier, just means to erase. So the company name, apparently, the the company which produces this uh, video game is in translation sense deletion or sense eradication or the That's eradication of senses. Yeah, right. Although you say that it's not, it's not it's it seems it's like fake German. It isn't good German grammar. Yeah. Well, um, I was trying to think of it would be like if I were to say it in English, I would say something like the eradication of senses or the eradication of one's senses. If I said sensation erasure i guess that means the same thing but it's not the and it's also not grammatically incorrect but it's not the way an english speaker would naturally speak it seems a bit forced it seems a bit like maybe somebody who doesn't speak english as their first language put something into google translate and and that's what came up so it, it's not strictly speaking incorrect german it's just a bit weird as a German speaker. Okay. Now, the Polybius part, that's the name of an ancient Greek historian. Coincidentally or not coincidentally, that Greek historian came from a place called Arcadia. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool. Like, if this is all a hoax, to have put that kind of effort into name your game after a historian who comes from the place of Arcadia. 
that's and not only that, but poly bias itself, roughly translated, would mean many poly bias lives. Right. Although many lives from Arcadia, chef's kiss. Yeah, yeah. What what do I say here? I have to admit to um, not having done the homework in reading Polybius's forty volumes of history, but I on on I take it (laughs) from other people that apparently one of his core uh, edicts as a historian was you may not report on things that you have not had personal experience of. Oh, there's so many layers to this. Yeah, we just got into the name. Okay, so as far as the gameplay goes, in the stories that are circulated about Polybius, it's sometimes described as being sort of similar to another 1981 game, which was called Tempest. Now, Tempest was kind of a revolutionary game because we had already seen Space Invaders, where your guy is at the bottom and he's and he's shooting up at, at other uh, aliens that are sort of scrolling across the screen. But in Tempest, it takes that and it kind of spins it and makes it a bit three-dimensional so that they're coming towards you and you're kind of rotating around rather than going back and forth. Look, I, I was just saying earlier in our intro that I can go to my local bar and I can play all these video games from the 1980s. Why don't we know what the gameplay was like? Like, why can't we just go onto an emulator? I actually, I grew up with Sega, I have to admit, and I recently bought a Sega emulator and it came with like all the games from the early 90s. And you know what? They're they're not as good as I remember them. So it, I'm not playing them that much. But Nathan, how come we can't just try out this game and then tell everybody what it was like? Well, there was something weird about this game because according to the story... It was extremely popular, like weirdly, bizarrely popular. Even at a time when there was a lot of buzz around video games, it was a pretty new thing, the arcade 1981. Even by those standards, this was a very popular video game to the point that apparently there were fistfights breaking out in line amongst people who were, who were that desperate to play. They were willing to physically fight someone else to get their chance. People were coming back again and again and again, just pouring quarters into it. But after a few days, according to the stories some of the players began to notice strange symptoms. And you, you mentioned Zinnisloschen. I just massacred the name. Uh, well, one of the symptoms was memory loss, as well as vivid nightmares, paranoia, insomnia, catatonia, and certain words and phrases started flashing across their minds. In some versions of the story, players started to feel like they weren't even in control of their emotions anymore. They weren't in control of their actions anymore. And... In some versions, there are deaths associated with this game, including murder. And to make it even creepier, apparently, in these arcades, men in black would sometimes come by to open up the machine, not to take the quarters out, but to collect data from them. And sometimes these men in black were seen replacing parts or removing parts. Sometimes they'd move the the machine to a different arcade. And then one day, and this is why you can't play it now, all of the Polybius machines were simply removed and they were never seen again. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who these guys would have been. The most common interpretation that I come across is that the men in black were CIA operatives. And the game, here comes the punchline, the game was a kind of mind control experiment. Okay. Right. All right. So this video game cabinet emerges in one, maybe two arcades, it's it's intensely popular. People have weird side effects. There's also weird stuff around the game. 
and then suddenly disappears, never to be seen again. And now, I guess people are trying to reconstruct what it would what would gameplay have been like. So we get back to your earlier point. Um, the, some of the research I had done suggested that the graphics were unusually intense. That mm-hmm. there was, I think you mentioned like a kind of a kaleidoscope effect. I had also read that it was a bit like not a first person shooter, but of uh, like a, a flying game. Like uh, you, you fly around, you shoot things, but there was like maybe a puzzle element as well. But there was some mathematical aspects, some geometrical aspects. Yeah, and and some of the supposition is also there was subliminal messages that were being pumped through the game. These are messages that you wouldn't pick up consciously, but w- were the theory at least was that you were going to be affected subconsciously. Okay, but this is why we have to do such kind of cloak and dagger analysis of what the gameplay is like. Because if we were talking about Super Mario or the original Mario Brothers, I'd say, well, just try out the game, you know. It's easy. But uh, both Nathan and I have not been able to try out this game because... Uh, there, there have been some people who've tried to recreate it. Yeah. And I've looked, at some, I've looked at some of the recreations and they're kind of cool. Uh, but these are all in all gamer fans who kind of, you know, and coders who can create these games themselves and then publish them. There was an April Fool's joke where you could download it onto your PC and it gave you all these like scary warnings of what would happen to you if you started. But then when you went through it all and pressed OK, it shut down and then says, April Fool's, send it to your friend. This idea that there's a video game that the CIA designed in order to practice mind control. It seems a little far-fetched, but are there aspects of this story that make it seem a little bit less far-fetched, things that maybe make it more plausible. And I think the first thing that we have to discuss is, Lee, has the CIA ever had an interest in performing mind control experiments? <laughs> you know, honestly, MK Ultra is such a gateway drug when it comes to conspiracies because, again, it makes everything else so plausible. So to answer Nathan's questions, yes, there was MK Ultra, which was, we've mentioned it, I think, almost on every episode since we've recorded it. It was a secret CIA project to see what what could be done with human minds when you subjected them to the hallucinogenics plus other kind of inputs. Could you make super soldiers? Could you brainwash them? Could you create a truth serum? I'm thinking also of Stargate, which, while not exactly mind control, is a notion of using minds to control the environment, to uh, telepathically uh, intercept messages from the enemy. So yes, yes, in short, the CIA was very interested in this. Was there anything else you were thinking of, Nathan, when it came to mind control besides Project Stargate and MKUltra? I mean, there's so much in those and what's interesting is that when you do a deep dive into something like MKUltra, there were so many different aspects of it. There mm-hmm. were parts of it where there were people torturing frogs. There were parts where you had magicians come in to teach card tricks. Like MKUltra was a massive program with all sorts of very strange aspects to it. To the point that if you had told me that this sort of arcade game was part of the MKUltra experiments, it wouldn't even be the strangest part. Like, that wouldn't even be the least believable part. If you had mentioned that, I'd say, yeah, sure, that fits right in with all of the other bizarre things that they were doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, for any listeners interested, we recorded an episode on MK Ultra, and there are some really, you know, sad and devastating aspects. Um, but there's that poor woman in it was in Montreal, wasn't she? Um mm-hmm. who was uh subjected to LSD kind of continuously for weeks on end and eventually loses her mind in a non-technical description of it, but it was horrendous. And so yeah. The, the notion that the CIA would try something like this does not seem that far-fetched. Nor does the idea that the CIA would be trying out an experiment on unwilling people that had adverse effects on them. Yeah. Because we've, we've established that that has happened many times. So actually, you know, the funny thing is I've become so jaded that the piece of evidence that for me was the least believable in this story was that the CIA pulled it out of the arcades when kids got sick. Right. And I'm like, nah, if there was any chance that this was actually working, there's no way. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a sweet naivete to imagine that the CIA cares so much about American children that if right. one or two of them got sick as a result of their operations, that they would immediately cease and desist. And it was at that point where I started becoming a little skeptical. <laughs> and so already in this episode, we have gone from a pleasant sort of diversionary trip to our childhood playing yes. arcade games to a, a brutal, vicious assessment of the CIA's immorality. And I'm sorry, I seem to be doing this in every episode lately. Maybe it's just the coming of winter or something, but I'm I'm I feel particularly dark these days. Um and I'm well, I mean you're on the right bit. podcast then. <laughs> but we're still at the point where we want to talk about how there are this plausible plausible. plausible. Yeah. So so what else did you find plausible in this? Well, if we look at video games themselves, in particular arcade games, there is a real immersive aspect to them. Uh, here's here's a quote that I think is fascinating. It's it's sort of from the early 1980s. It's it's one of the lead guys at Atari, which of course is one of the main video game companies at the time. Don Osborne says this: "I look for emotional response on the part of the player. I look for signs of anger and frustration." When a person pounds the control panel upon losing a man or life, it's a strong indication that he or she is really involved in the game. Or the player may let out a loud groan or shriek. When the person doesn't show any emotional reaction on losing a life, it's a tip-off that he or she doesn't care much about the game. Another way to tell is simply to put your hand on the side of the cabinet as the game is being played. When a player is enthusiastic about a game, you can feel the energy, the vibrations, as the joystick is moved about. Players have been known to topple over games by wrenching the joystick back and forth. It's a bad sign when a youngster sits around and sips a Coke or something and fails to pay attention when someone else is playing the game. I like to see non-players act as observers watching what's going on. And I think this is true. This is my own experience of playing these games. Like, have you ever had a physical reaction because of something that happened in the game you were playing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember being disconnected from my video game console when I had like a total tantrum as a result of of dying. You know, you're trying to pass a level and 
you can't do it and you get closer and closer, but you still end up dying before you pass the level. I remember once just blowing up and screaming my head off. I was so angry. And my mom comes down. She's like, no, that's, that's absolutely you've had enough. Like you're, you're out. Like you you don't get this. Go play with your friends outside. And I, I still remember being really mad at her too for not letting me try again because that's all that mattered was just getting to the next stupid level. Um, yeah, you get so zoned in, you get so focused. It becomes yeah. your entire world, basically. Yeah, especially and, with those and, large cabinets. You're, you're of course familiar with William Gibson. Sure, I am. Yeah. So neuromancer. He's famous. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's famous for his work on cyberspace. He was a very early, like almost a prophet of the virtual world. I would say. And he credits watching people play video games in the 1970s as a huge inspiration. He said people would duck and weave as they played as if they were on the other side of the screen, as if they weren't on right. the outside playing it, as yeah. if they were inside the game being it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, just picking up on the sci-fi notion here, there are two uh, sci-fi authors, which also, it's a bit tenuous, this connection, but it just, I think, shows this notion being in the zeitgeist uh both orson scott card and ernest klein both have a video game in their novels uh so orson scott card it's uh ender's game and ernest klein it's armada they both have a video game created by the government used both as a training and recruitment device where you let all these players play the game and then the best ones you're you know it, it it sort of shows you well they're the ones who are going to be good whatever pilots or something like that so the the notion that a video game might have a, an ulterior motive is also something that kind of makes sense and at, at least in science fiction is in the is in the zeitgeist if not um you know in actuality Oh, oh, sure. I was, in science fiction, you could have a video game that could be used to train people in actual warfare, but surely that couldn't happen out here where we live in the real world, right? <laughs> I'm too cynical. You're going to give me an example of where this actually happens. 1980, there was a arcade game called Battlezone. And Battlezone was an early example of 3D vector graphics. So the game was a simulation of driving a tank, avoiding missiles, and shooting targets. And it was really cool because you look through an actual physical periscope to see the screen. Okay. Well, the U.S. Army saw this game and actually commissioned Atari to build a version to help train recruits to aim and fire the weapons of the brand new Bradley Armored Personnel Carrier. Battle Zone. It's one of a new generation of electronic games that are taking Americans by storm, especially male Americans, who flock to arcades like this one around the country to do battle with the machines. In the games, you are fighting enemy forces, and the object is to get them before they get you, which is exactly the idea in a real war for a tank gunner, or say the gunner driver of one of the Army's new M2 infantry fighting vehicles. And that gave the Army an idea. Be awfully nice to be able to go downstairs if we were both gunners and spend uh, 30 minutes each day kind of resharpening or rehoning our skills without the problem of loading up in vehicles and driving 50 miles out to find a range where you could fire. It would be awfully nice, and it would also save on ammunition, fuel, and spare parts. The cost of them is skyrocketing. So the Army Training Command recently asked the Atari Game Company to adapt one of their battle zone games to have the controls, characteristics, and sounds of an infantry fighting vehicle. Be careful of that enemy tank. 
But wait, get the helicopter first. That's the bigger threat to you. Army officers were delighted with the machine and planned by this October to contract with a game company to build about 10 more, this time to resemble the gunner's controls on the Army's standard M60 tank. Put them in clubs, in messes, maybe put them in break rooms, put them down in the motor pool, and find out whether or not soldiers will do this on their own and what kind of feedback we get. The Army will then study whether the games improve the hand-eye coordination and accuracy of their gunners. And this is the famous uh, Bradley trainer, right? Exactly. And so this was a video game that the U.S. Army noticed, recognized this is something that we could use for our own purposes, and actually then commissioned Atari to build a couple. Now, a lot of the people that worked for Atari were horrified at this. And some of them were originally going to refuse to even do it because they didn't want to become a part of the military-industrial complex. Remember, this is after the 1970s. And in the 1970s, as we've talked about before, so much stuff came out about the shenanigans that the American government had gotten up to. So by the 80s, people were justifiably a little bit paranoid. But they did make two of these machines, and they were used uh, for training. That's really interesting. Um, it, it reminds me of having played a couple of years ago, I played Call of Duty 4. And I had to stop, and I stopped at the moment when... Uh, you get to a certain level and you have to do drone strikes. And the drone strikes looked exactly like the video footage from the second Iraq war. Whereas like, this is, this is too real for me. Like I can't, I mean, the rest of the game is actually brutally real as well, but this one was so real. It's like, I couldn't distinguish this from a, a drone pilot doing drone strikes, you know, in an actual war right now. So, okay, just to briefly recap, <laughs> because I'm starting to almost become convinced now that this this actually went down. So we have a government or we have governmental agencies that have a, a proven track record of trying out mind control experiments on their own population, both, Check. To, both to subjects who know about it, but also subjects who don't know about it, right? We have... Uh, uh, a government that has produced a video game as a kind of um, military training device. We have now, now what we didn't talk about is. Oh, your, and, and the third thing we have is just the immersive nature of video games themselves. Right. How it does right, seem right, that right. video games are, do have this capacity to basically hack our emotions and our thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So that seems like a lot of, maybe there's something to this, this story. Maybe this is one of those stories that we come across that we decide, you know what, this one's legit. But before we decide, let's look at some of the things that make this story less likely, that make it less plausible. Hmm. And let's start with one of the main bits of evidence that is that is always provided, which is that screenshot. Right. The first question I would have is, if you could take a picture of a game, that's not the part of the game you're going to take a picture of. You're not going to take a picture of like the intro screen. You're going to take a picture of the gameplay. So that's a little I, bit suspect. The font itself is also kind of a problem. I, I said that the font was classic 1980s retro style, which is true. But the problem is it's classic retro 80s from the mid-1980s, not 1981. You could argue, yeah, but that's the, the games of the mid-80s of 1985, 86 that use this kind of font. They were drawing their inspiration from Polybius. But if this game was secret and forgotten, why would its font become influential? I think mm -hmm. it makes way more sense that the screenshot that we've seen 
is faked and was actually made long after the 1980s. And the person who faked it was drawing inspiration from those mid-1980s games. You know, font is one of those hidden indicators that a lot of people don't think about. I've heard of court cases being one where the prosecution was able to prove that a piece of evidence submitted by the defense was a forgery because of the font. I wish I could remember the exact case I'm talking about, but that font hadn't been invented until 1986. And this letter, quote unquote, had been backdated to like 1982. And they're like, I'm sorry, in 1982, that font didn't exist. So it's that is a really interesting investigative track when you're trying to pin something historically is actually looking at the kinds of fonts that were available then. So I like that you went down that path. I was alerted to another direction. Um, and for me, this is this is a quite devastating counter-argument to the, the, the notion that the Polybius game was real. It is copyrighted by a company called Zinnes Löschen. Now, so you go, if you look at the screenshot and you can Google, you know, Polybius screenshot and you'll see exactly what Nathan was talking about. And then you see a letter C with a circle around it and the name Zinnes Löschen. Well, that letter C indicates that it was copyrighted and that I mean, the whole point of copyright, the whole point is to leave a paper trail so that you are able to verify in a court of law that you are the first and not somebody else to have invented, designed, created whatever you submitted a copyright for. And this stuff is publicly accessible, okay? Again, for purposes like if I am an inventor and I want to invent something, I can save myself the three or four years of trial and error if I can discover that somebody else has invented the damn thing. All right. So if you do a search for Zinnesluschen and Polybius, there is no registered copyright for this thing. So there's basically two things on that photograph we have, and there's problems with both of them. There's yeah. problems with the font and there's problems with the copyright. And there's problems, as you point out right to begin with, the very fact that it is a photograph and not a video, or it is a photograph of the most boring part of the the game, not the actual game. I mean, yep. show me the show me the graphics where I'm gonna get a seizure or where there's a subliminal message, or you know, like Yeah, exactly. If you can take a picture of the title screen, you can take a picture of the gameplay. There, there's some other aspects of it that I think sort of make the whole story less plausible. If you look at the other games of 1981, you got Frogger, you got Galaga, you got Donkey Kong. These are classics. These are stone cold classics, but you wouldn't call them particularly nuanced or advanced. <laughs> simple graphics, limited interface. Uh, my kind like, of video game right there. Oh, sure. And like the sounds again are just sort of like the simplest possible little. Yeah. The average game only lasted about 45 seconds. Uh, a game that lasted long enough to have any kind of mind control effects would have required far longer than 45 seconds. And arcade owners had access to the programming of the machines. Hmm. And this was done so that they could adjust the difficulty of that particular cabinet according to their own preferences. Maybe they wanted to get more quarters in so they'd make the game a little bit harder. Or maybe people were getting frustrated and stopped playing it so then the owners would make it a little easier. But then... If you're the CIA and you've got this top secret mind control experiment, you don't want to put it in a situation where just some rando can come by and open up and tinker with it. Mm -hmm. But that was the nature of the arcade cabinets back then. 
Another yeah. question we have to ask is, this whole thing seems to be based on the idea of subliminal suggestion. But does subliminal suggestion even work? Well, I, w- I was going to ratchet that one up even more and say, I don't think mind control works. I mean, beyond sort of, uh, you know, you're going to do this or terrible things will happen to you and your family, in which right. case- Coercion works. Coercion works. Work. But, but what the, what what we discover, what the CIA discovers with MKUltra is you can break people, but you can't really mind control them. You can't create new personalities, erase large quantities of memory, none of this stuff. You can't create a truth serum. You can't make somebody just, you know, incapable of lying or or all of these things. And, okay, I should backtrack around subliminal messaging. So this was a thing, and I remember in the 80s and 90s, this was, I don't know if it was, I, I, I might go so far as to call it almost a moral panic. It yeah. was, uh, and also a pop psychology theory in the sense that, it was believed a lot among non-experts, but I don't know really very many credible experts who thought this theory had any legs. The idea was that you could hide messages, say in a movie, and there's been examples of this. So there was a, a famous a, example where in a movie, they flashed during the movie, they flashed up a message that went so quickly that nobody noticed that that message came. And so the idea was you would sort of absorb this message into your unconscious without having it filtered through your conscious mind. So your conscious mind was not able to dis- discredit the message or anything. It would just go into you and then later would come out as sort of your own inspiration. Now, now this experiment that was done on moviegoers was drink Coke. And then the experiment was, well, do more people in the intermission buy Coke than the people who were not exposed to that message? And the answer was no. Now, now, the original version of that was done in 1957 by a market researcher named James Vickery. Exactly as you describe, they flashed the words, drink Coca-Cola, and also, hungry, eat popcorn. Right. For like one three thousandths of a second during a film. Yeah. According to Vickery, sales of soda went up by 18%, and sales of popcorn went up by 59%. However, when they repeated the experiment... He admitted, no, I just made those numbers up. (laughs) So it it looks like the subliminal stuff, like even the most famous version of it, as you say, when they did an actual experiment on it, it didn't have any effect. No. And they tried this in shopping malls in the early 90s. They would put like anti-theft messages under the music so you, you wouldn't hear it. But apparently somehow your brain was picking up these messages. Now... Again, I mean, I don't know how many times I have to say that I'm not a medical expert, but and I don't know the mechanism of how this actually works. But my understanding is if you are not perceiving it, it's not going to have much impact on your on, on the way you behave, right? I mean, if you're, quote unquote, sending me messages, and this happens to me a lot just in conversation, is people are sending me subtle cues, and I don't see them, so I don't act on them. So, you know, like... Did it have any effect? No, it did not. I mean, if you're going to be spending your money in advertising, you're better off spending it on liminal advertising where they just, somebody's like, hey, drink Coke. You're like, oh, I will. Sure. Exactly. If If the cool kids are doing it, I'll do it too. Right. So, okay. 
Now, but was it, I mean, the, the stuff that I had read, it wasn't entirely clear if it was originally subliminal messaging, or maybe there was something in the in in the way the graphics were created, or the puzzles, you know, that this would like unlock something in your mind or break something in your mind. Well, and this in itself is kind of an issue with a story like this when you get all sorts of different versions of it, and it, it seems like the versions don't necessarily agree and there's a lot of speculation, then we have to start asking ourselves, okay, so then what is this based on? It's based on hearsay. It's based on word of mouth. It's based on a, a kind of information organism that we've talked about before called the urban legend. Right. And we have an episode on the urban legend where we really pick apart what that is. But Nathan, do you want to give us just like a quick summary of what distinguishes an urban legend from other kinds of narratives, uh, stories, factual accounts? Yeah, urban legends are an interesting little information organism in our ecosystem. They tend to show up in times of social change. And the urban legend, it often serves as kind of a warning against change. There's something new in your society an urban legend will show up to scare you about that thing. Like microwaves start to become popular. And so then I go out for recess and somebody's like, hey, did you hear? This lady was washing her poodle and she was in a hurry and she didn't want to let it dry. So she put it in the microwave and it exploded. Like, oh, microwaves are new and scary. Anytime <laughs> you see a social change in your society, there's often going to be this weird sort of reactionary backlash to it that often shows up in these urban legends, they always happen to a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. It's never this happened to somebody I know or it happened to me. This happened to a friend of a friend. And then by the end of the urban legend, somebody has either been horribly punished for violating a social norm, or there's some new aspect of your culture that turns out to be secretly dangerous, like Pop Rocks and Coke. What's interesting about the urban legend is that most of them aren't true. Occasionally one is, but most of them aren't. But what they do provide is a window into your your society's psyche, your zeitgeist, hmm. to see what is it that our society is afraid of right now? What, hmm. are, what do we hate? What are our prejudices? What are our fears? What are we attracted to? And if we look at some of the facts behind this Polybius urban legend, then we can kind of see how this information organism formed and started spreading throughout society. I mean, one of the key things is, as you've talked about arcades are seedy and sketchy and shady okay i wanted to add something to this which is there were actually people uh, whose job it was to go into arcades and to check the devices now these weren't like the arcade operators who would take the the change out and you know service the machines these were actual members of the government who would come in to examine these machines for various purposes. Now, and this might very well be where the notion that men in black were coming in and, you know, examining the machines. So turns out one of the things that government agencies were looking for, uh, they were worried about illegal gambling taking place in, in th using these machines. So they would check and they would occasionally pull out bits of machinery, especially if they didn't know what, what its purpose was, they would pull it out to test it to see if these machines weren't used uh, for illegal purposes, specifically gambling. So 
that adds like this other level of reality to the story that there are shadowy figures coming in and investigating the machines. Apparently, there was also a, a practice of actually writing down the names of the high scorers in some of these games. Uh, now, apparently, that was in case if something had happened, they might have been witnesses to illegal events. Because I don't know how clearly this came through, but arcades, especially in the 80s, how, how clearly this came through from Nathan and my stories, but arcades in the 80s were kind of seedy places. Um, so sketchy. They were not. So shady. Yeah, they were not. Even what you see in like Tron, uh, the movie, it seems like this happy, fun place for kids. But it was as much a kind of a quote unquote safe space for hard drug users, drug deals, and yeah, and the shady stuff going down. So uh, the cops also had an interest in these places. But again, so now we have that other element of the story, which also kind of checks out. You have these government agents coming in, checking names, checking the machines, and these are not video game operators or mechanics who are fixing it. Uppercut! Yeah, and so we have an urban legend which kind of emphasizes it's a dangerous place. We also have, I think, the fear of what is this kind of new technology doing to new minds. I mean, I got to admit, it's a fear that I have in a more updated version with my kids when they play less. <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm, I'm from the eighties, so I'm okay with video games, but I am somewhat skeptical of, of these video games on the phone, which strike me to be very much designed like slot machines. And I worry with respect to my children that they promote a kind of an addictive relationship to the game and to the tech. But it's that kind of fear, I think, also in the 80s that people had with respect to, and maybe even later, with respect to this new kind of technology. I mean, television was around, but now this is interactive television. And God knows who's creating it, you know? Yeah, and when you read newspaper articles at the time, there was a ton of panic about, you know, what happens when you have these, these kids playing these games where they're killing, where they're shooting. Right. In in 1976, there was a bit of a moral panic around a new game called Death Race. Now, <laughs> De- Death Race was based on one of my favorite films of all time, Death Race 2000. The year 2000. America is a vast speedway. People line the streets to witness the greatest drivers on earth in a race from sea to shining sea. This is a death race. You finish first, or not at all. Death Race 2000. Every car a deadly weapon. Every spectator a potential point. If you haven't seen it, like go watch it. It's it's brilliant. Make sure you get the original version with David Carradine and Sylvester Stallone. And the <laughs> idea of Death Race 2000, the movie, was that it was this dystopian futuristic society where once a year, to reduce the population, you would have a big race across America and the drivers would get points for running over pedestrians and killing them. <laughs> and that's sort of what this video game was. Okay. But of course, in 1976, the graphics are so terrible that your car is like a square and the pedestrians right. are stick people. Right. And when you run over one, it kind of gives out this metallic scream and then a cross appears where the pedestrian was. Right. And and from with our today's eyes, we look back at that and it's hilarious. But at the time, people were like, oh, no, are we training our children to be like murderers, right. basically? Yeah. But even before people were afraid of arcade games, 
they were afraid of of pinball. There was a pinball hmm. panic in the 1940s. Uh, there was talk about how the mob were the ones who were making all the money off it, that people right. get addicted to it. There are some amazing photographs in the 40s of Mayor LaGuardia of New York City just smashing up pinball tables. <laughs> and And here's a weird little bit of history. The metal from those smashed up pinball tables was sent to the military to produce bombs. Can you guess what the wooden legs were turned into? No. There's no way I could. There's no way you could. Nobody could. They were turned into billy clubs for policemen. Right. Okay. Well, well, at least they all had very, you know, savory and safe uses. I mean. (laughs) That's right. Why, these games are dangerous. Let's turn them into bombs and billy clubs. There was also the, the comic book scare which is the similar kind of panic around what's happening with our children and what kind of morals are they being subjected to when in these comic books, all kinds of terrible things are happening and almost being praised as, as you know, laudable good events. And I think you see all of that reemerge in the fear around video games. And also kind of the language in the mass media at the time was it was almost kind of insulting. I, I found this New York Times article from 1983, and I just got to quote it, quote it from okay. it directly. So this was about this question of, are arcades dangerous for children? Should they be banned? So here's the, here's the quote from the Times article. A man with a receding hairline and a paunch who was pumping quarter tokens into the Pac-Man game agreed with most of the younger people at Aladdin's castle. If a kid is going to be trained to spend his money foolishly, he said, He's going to spend it foolishly regardless of what ordinance you have. This thing reminds me of Prohibition. Did that keep people from drinking? Unlike his younger compatriots, he looked nervous when asked for his name. Just put down Eddie, he said. I'm a businessman. Do you think I want my customers to know I'm a Pac-Man freak? <laughs> Imagine being that guy and reading that article. Yeah. And like, a oh, receding hairline and a paunch. Yeah, I think I got both of those things, and I really don't want to be reminded there's some other weird facts about this about this particular urban legend. There was some really good research done by a journalist named Kat Despira, and she documented that there is an example from 1981 of a player in the Portland area experiencing negative effects from playing an arcade-style game. It was Astro Fighter. As Lee said, government agents did inspect arcade games, but to look for bootleg ripoffs and to look for like gambling and stuff like that. Here's a weird one. In Seattle, again, West Coast in 1982, FBI agents set up a sting at the Games People Play Arcade, assuming correctly that lots of shifty, shady stuff went down in arcades. So they put hidden cameras in arcade game cabinets. And they specifically used Tempest games whenever they could, since it was a popular and hard-to-find game. So you could easily see how that true story could get warped and twisted and changed into the story of Polybius and government agents. Yeah, so I have here a news article from 1981. It's November 29th, 1981. And it's about a kid who gets sick after playing video games in an arcade. But here's the catch. I'll I'll read you a a bit of this article. The lead is, Tommy derails asteroids champ. Portland AP, a 12-year-old video game whiz who prevailed over electronic asteroids and enemy spaceships for more than 28 hours was knocked out of his gunner's perch Friday by stomach discomfort. Okay, so he's going after a a world record and one or, or the high score 
and wants to beat the high score. And it's a televised event. And he plays this game for 28 hours straight. And then like, I don't know, you know, has like a stomach ache. What was he eating? He wasn't sleeping or anything. And this I'm makes sure he was news. drinking soda and eating candy. Yeah. And this makes the news that, you know, a kid is taken ill playing video games. Well, we've seen this so often about how information morphs. So some elements of the story are retained in the public consciousness, like video game child and illness. West what's Coast. La- yeah, what's lost is played for 28 hours, not polybius, uh, you know, being recorded on television to try and beat the high score. I mean, it's kind of funny, the things that people let kids do in 1981 or whatever. I mean, today, there's no way you would let a 12-year-old do something for 28 hours on live television. Wildly irresponsible. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's other aspects too. I mean, that's such an extreme example. But even people who played for a normal amount, uh, the flashing lights in early arcade games could maybe cause a seizure in somebody who is photosensitive. Like, this is possible. It's possible, but it was actually quite rare. I mean, I'm yeah. not dismissing it. It definitely did happen, but it happened less than even I, who am skeptical about a lot of these health claims, imagined. Like there was very few reports of people actually getting sick from the video game play itself in the early 80s. It does happen later, and it happens more with home consoles and stuff like that. But isn't this but such na- an important part of the moral panic is that you have a small amount of something happening, and then it gets blown out of proportion, like people yeah. eating Tide Pods. Yeah, <laughs> you have to you have to clarify that reference, right? A few years back, there was a big because we we did talk panic. about it, right? Yeah, yeah. That this idea that oh no, the kids are all eating Tide Pods, and the there was it was in newspapers and it was in like daytime television and it was uh, on the twenty four hour news channels. Well, and Tide even came out to say don't eat the Tide Pods. So these are the the washing detergent things that actually do look suspiciously like candy. Um, they're colorful and stuff. And yeah, it's the official position of the uncover up that you should not eat Tide Pods. <laughs> if you don't want to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or do, who cares? <laughs> Whatever. Still blame us for it. Yeah. Um, but hold it's on. For you, I'll say that. We but it almost have... never happened. No, exactly. And the, and when it did happen, it happened once the, the like, don't do this kind of messaging was publicized. Right. Like it In almost never that... happened that people didn't put razor blades into apples until after the urban legend about razor blades and apples was circulating. Right, 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 right. So it's, okay. so it's like the, now the, the last thing that we'll say about this sort of the last, the last nail in the coffin is that there's a documentarian, Stuart Brown, who did just a, a remarkable uh, documentary about Polybius, yeah. the game, which is available on YouTube for free. Yeah. And we should give the full name. It's called Polybius, the video game that doesn't exist. And the thing about urban legends is it's hard to get like good documentary evidence for this stuff. But this journalist did an incredible job on uncovering the timeline, on like actually sleuthing who some of these people behind the story actually were, seems to have some coding expertise, like can do things that seem remarkable to me, like figure out somebody's actual name from like Twitter, uh, even though they're using a handle. So I just want to give that background as supplementary to uh, how much we appreciated uh, this journalist's work. 
Yeah, and his his findings, and you should just watch the entire uh, documentary because it's very entertaining, but his findings were that there was no known mention of a game called Polybius before 2000 in print February or 6th. online. February yep. 6, 2000 is when apparently the first mention of this game emerges on the site coinop.org, which is a, a video game discussion board repository. And so it seems as though it's possible that the person who was running coinop.org started pitching this urban legend as a way of attracting views to his site. Yeah. There are other people who might be behind this urban legend, but I just want to talk about very briefly how this sometimes emerges. And we we living in the future uh, don't really know this all the time. When the stories that we tell have their historical origins. So a good example is the Roswell incident. So the stuff around, so of course, listeners will know the the theory that aliens crash landed in New Mexico, their uh, remains of the aliens and their spaceship are quickly gathered up by the US uh, Army and shipped off to Area 51, where it's then reverse engineered uh, to provide us with all our modern technological gadgets. Now, the mistake would be, in a sense, to start looking for evidence of that story in 1947, was it? Because while something does happen in 1947, the actual story of Roswell becomes a kind of this kind of urban legend in popular works of fiction that get published in the late 70s and early 80s, including a, a title called The Roswell Incident. And this is where an event that had some historical precedent was kind of elaborated into this broad cultural myth. Now, when I talk to people today in the 2020s and ask them about Roswell, they use that myth, but tell me about what happened in 1947. But if you go back to the news accounts of 1947, you go back to the eyewitness accounts, nobody is talking about crash-landed spaceships and alien bodies and reverse engineering tech. That all comes 40 years or 35 years after the fact. And yeah, there, the there's, same- a, there's a skeleton in 1947. There's yeah. a, an announcement about a flying disc. There is something that crashes in the field. Like, that yeah. is present. But that... Yeah, but it, it, it's the it's this myth that emerges later. And I feel like the Polybius story works the same way. So Nathan and I have been talking about the early 80s, about kind of uh, the cultural, historical milieu and ambiance and what was happening and things people were afraid of. And this might have led into a mass panic or whatever. But actually, the story of Polybius actually seems to emerge first in 2000. Um, and this, again, is because of this internet sleuthing of... Stuart Brown. Stuart Brown. Thank you. And thank and you, Kat Stuart Despira. Brown. Thank you to both of them. Yeah, um, it's excellent work. Hadouken! Differentiating when we know, like, because this is a question students ask me, in, in all good conscience, all good faith, why do I feel confident saying that the moon landing happened like as it did, that it isn't a conspiracy that the United States didn't fake it. But I believe that MKUltra was actually this mind control experiment conducted by the CIA. And it's in the nature of the evidence. Like when we say MKUltra happened, it's because the CIA says MKUltra happened. 
There's a paper trail. You can go to the CIA website and you can download the files, uh, highly redacted, I admit, but they are still there. You know, there are court cases in the Supreme Court. There's the apology of Richard Nixon to the Olson family. There's some very credible stuff that emerges where you can say, okay, that happened. Like it would be, I mean, the counter argument here would be the CIA faked the fact that they were unsuccessfully trying mind control experiments on the American citizen by creating this elaborate and insane paper trail, which then is accidentally discovered by a group of, you know, forget it, right? And same thing with COINTELPRO, the same thing with our, what was it, the last episode or the episode before on C-Spray, we have the Senate hearings from from this. So we have official documentation from- We've got got eyewitnesses putting their names on the record saying this happened. Here's here's the evidence from the hospital. Here is- Exactly. So you have the doctors who have corroborating evidence. You have Mm -hmm. the uh, military, you have investigators and all of these, and and then it is compiled by the very organization, okay, very broadly here, um, the American government, who is the perpetrator and does not come out looking great. I mean, I realize that there are different branches of the government. It's not one thing. But that kind of evidence to me seems really a lot more solid. That's why we know Watergate was a real conspiracy. We know MKUltra, COINTELPRO, Project Seaspray, Iran-Contra, We know these things were real conspiracies that really happened. Then when we come up to something like this, the evidence is so flimsy that it really is some guy said something about something that may have happened once a long time ago. But if you actually piece it together, all of it can be accounted for other news articles that said something similar or games that were similar but not were quite this. Um, Again, why don't we have the game? Why, why don't we have anybody who we can trust who can produce an actual, you know, version of the game, which apparently is called a ROM, like the original version, again, beyond my wheelhouse here. But for me, that was like the hallmarks now are quite apparent between the kind of stuff that is, that is thrown at the CIA's feet where you're just like, you know, it almost becomes this kind of black box of, well, Something nefarious is going on. The CIA probably did it. And no, no, we know that this was a legit operation because we've got a long paper trail. We've got victims. We've got their families, you know, all of that. Um, And that's all despite the fact that it doesn't. and, And here, this is, again, a very flimsy position. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But then again, not a lot of things that the CIA did, these secret projects did also did not make a lot of sense. But the end goal is very unclear. I mean, even with MK Ultra, you're trying to create a truth serum. You're trying to create super soldiers. You're trying to brainwash people. What is the end goal of getting kids to have epileptic seizures because of exposure? To, it just seems bizarre, uh, even if we take everything else at face value. So I'm pretty confident that this is an urban legend that no such video game ever existed. Now, one of the popularizers of this story, so even though it first appears on coinop.org, it's actually an article in GamePro in 2003, which which kind of explodes this story 
into the the public realm. And there, they suggest it's kind of inconclusive. And I disagree with that because I think you have clear like indices when you have actual operations done by the CIA that they got their fingerprints on it. It looks a certain way. Although I will say this. I do think that the American government had an interest in combining mind control and behavior modification and video games. Because sure. something I remember very clearly, after my character got beaten into a pulp <laughs> and my quarter was over and the game ended, a message would flash up on the screen, not subliminally, but for a couple <laughs> seconds, winners don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Ah, uh, yep. And then I would you think, see, well, I just I, lost them. And that, and that is the heavy-handed, flat-footed approach of American mind control, right there. <laughs> and, it, and and did it work? That's that's for another podcast episode. Yeah. No. Well, listen. You don't. Nah, I'm, <laughs> I was going to say you don't end up being a college professor with a podcast on conspiracy theories if you didn't engage in a lot of drug use. But please Allegedly. edit that out. 